You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Love it. Um, today we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, it's called A Providential People, and we're going to be exploring uh, what the church is and what kind of church God has called us to be. And so today we're going to start off in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you do not have one this morning, uh, you can look on the screen, but we also have some hardback black ones in the seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those and follow along. Uh, once again, that text will be 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. And if you are able and willing this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we will read together. Oh, Providence, hear the Word of the Lord. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year to you all. And uh, if it is your first time, I just want to say thank you so much for making us a part uh, of your week. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Eric said, we are kicking off a brand new sermon series uh, for the month of January entitled A Providential People. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, 2020 was a really eye-opening year, I'm sure for all of you as well as for uh, myself. As a human being, I went through all the similar uh, feelings, I think, and questions that you probably went through as well, like why, um, what in the world's going on, what are murder hornets, um, you know, things like that. Just, just like you couldn't help but feel like there's just things coming from, from every direction. You're not really sure what to do with it all. Um, but as a pastor, you know, I, I, I went through some time of, of wrestling and, and our elders kind of talked about this together and prayed about it really all the way since March, which is asking the questions, what is the Lord up to? Like, where, where's the Lord in all of this? Um, what is he asking of us? What, what's the Lord requiring of us? What is he, how should we be responding to this as the church? You know, and and I'll be honest with you, this was, a, this was a time of wrestling that it wasn't like there was these, um, these immediate answers. And even all the way to the end of December, I never felt like I had this moment where in my quiet time or in my time of devotion that, you know, Jesus just came in like, you know, like he did in the upper room to say, Thomas, you know, put your hands on my wrists. You know, I didn't have that moment to get answers for this kind of stuff. Um, but if you looked online, you know, there were lots of opinions. I don't know if you guys saw that or not. Everybody seemed to think they knew exactly what the Lord was up to. Uh, tons of people saying a ton of different things. And I think that part of that, maybe even as, as well-intentioned as it is, also comes because 2020 just had all sorts, like coming from every angle. It was like, you know, are we going to be at war with basically everyone? And then, oh no, are we all going to be sick and, and, and get a disease? And then insects might infiltrate the home. And it just felt like everybody's having to kind of like take those as they come and then like try to rationalize those. And then I think theologically you're trying to rationalize those. And that's why it, it kind of created a little bit more like division because then everybody kind of developed a tribe and decided, you know, what was going to solve all the problems. And I came out of 2020 with only one thing that I feel really 
uh, convicted and certain about. And, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. And then also it's really going to be kind of the, the catalyst for this month. And that is this, the church of Jesus Christ is not insufficient for times like these. It was born in times like these or worse. It grew most rapidly in times like these or worse. And in times like these, it birthed the most powerful ministries and movements that the world's ever seen. So if there's one thing that I feel certain about, and I hope that you feel certain about, and if you don't, my hope is that by the end of this morning, you will. It's that the church is not just sufficient. It was born for this. And we need to lean into that more, not look outside of it instead. We need to go back to the basics. And I say that because I started asking myself the question after I kind of by the help of the spirit came to that recognition. Well, what was so special about the early church? And the truth is not a lot apart from God. I mean, let's, let's really look at it and things I'm going to mention. I want you to know, I love these things. Like we walk in and you walked in this morning and there was already coffee made for you. All right. I know if you're, if you're online, you're like, not us. It's like, all right, I'm sorry. We're not, we're not there yet. Okay. Maybe we'll have that delivery service at some point, but coffee was already here. Before, like pre-pandemic times, you could walk your kids up to the children's ministry and literally just toss those kids in there and somebody was going to care for them. Not only care for them, invest in them with the gospel, pray over them, deal with them in a way that's more gentle than you at times. It's crazy town, right? I mean, think about this. There were pew Bibles this morning. Could you imagine the early church? There was no pew Bibles. Like they, they didn't have Bibles for the most part. It's like they had to work, like, memor, like this is why they memorized the first five books of the Bible. Some of us are like, man, how spiritually astute. It's because they didn't have any more. It's like, if you don't memorize it, you're not going to know it. So there's not a ton they really had. And I can go on and on and on, right? Like lighted buildings, facilities, like dry ice fog machines that represent the spirit, whatever it is. They didn't have it. It was very fundamental. And I feel very convinced that the Lord is calling us back to that sort of fundamental basics in the church. And the reason for that is not just subjective in my own heart. In the Bible, very often national or worldwide calamity serves as a call from God back to return back to himself for his people. Um, C.S. Lewis was famous for saying that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains that pain and suffering and hardship is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world and particularly his church. And I believe that that's still true uh, today. And so this month, we're going to work through this together. We're going to talk about the church and the church as more than capable of thriving in times like this. And so this morning, what I want to do is I really want to answer two, two questions alone, and it'll be plenty. Um, what is the church and what should we be up to? What is the church and what should we be up to? And so before I jump into that, I'd love to pray for us. And here's what I want to pray. And please pray with me that the Lord would open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of his word for what it is. And then that the spirit would soften us to hear, to, to be molded. You know, the Bible talks about the heart of stone or heart of flesh and heart of flesh, meaning that it's sensitive, but also that it's moldable. And so that we might be moldable to be conformed together into the image of Christ. So if you'll pray with me, I, I want to pray for us. Father, first, we want to thank you for a new year. What a joy it is, God, to be your children. And what a joy it is to know that you're leading us into 2021 
and every subsequent year after that that you have designed for us to live on the face of the earth. You are our king, but you are also our father. And so thank you, Father, that that you love us and that you'll protect us and care for us and provide for us. And Holy Spirit, would you now open our ears, open our eyes, and open our hearts to be to be mindful of your word, to be thoughtful about your word, and to be shaped and molded by you into your image. We need you, Jesus. And particularly, God, I just pray that we'd have softened hearts in the areas that we need to repent, both individually and collectively, that we might find life on the other side of repentance because we would find you there. And so call us back, God, and give us ears to hear. We love you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's do it. First Peter chapter two, I'm going to start in verse nine. My first point is this, you know, what is the church? I want to immediately change that to who is the church? Who are we? Because the church is a, is a who, not a what, it's a people. And this is the definition that I'm giving this morning. The church is a people born of God's providence by God's power for God's purposes. The church is a people born of God's providence by God's power for God's purposes. So first Peter chapter two, verse nine, this is what Peter says about it. But you, you being the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is kind of a resounding snowball of words that Peter's using here. What is the church? Church is a people that is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And in order for us to really understand what Peter is saying here, we can't think of these words in an isolated vacuum. We have to think of who is saying them and what background does he have. Peter is a disciple of Jesus Christ and eyewitness to his sufferings. He's told us that so much in the letter. And he's a Jewish man, a Jewish man that has a worldview that's rooted in the Torah about who God is and what God has done and what God expects of him. And so when he writes this, he's not just writing this in a vacuum. He's writing it on the foundation that was built all the way since he was a child. And so if you have your Bibles, you keep your thumb in first Peter, but turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter number seven. Deuteronomy seven is almost a word for word of what Peter says in first Peter chapter two. Now, as you're turning there, I'll just catch you up. Deuteronomy is what many call the, the second reading of the law. It's Moses' final words to the children of Israel as he's receiving the oracles of God, the commands of God, and giving them to the children of Israel before they head over the Jordan River and into the promised land. He's, giving, he's re-giving them the commandments that they heard on Sinai. And in this moment, Moses is serving as the mouthpiece for the Lord. And what God is doing to the children of Israel is reminding them of why he brought them after 40 years, why he brought them out of Egyptian slavery, how he did it, and what he's calling them to do in this new promised land that was promised to Abraham a long time before this. So we're picking that up in verse number six in chapter number seven of Deuteronomy. This is what the Lord says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen to this. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and he is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This is why the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery 
from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is faithful. He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So let's walk through this together. What is God saying about the purpose of the children of Israel and why God brought them out? Here's what he says. God says, I plucked Israel out of obscurity and I chose to save them from the tyranny of Pharaoh. I set my name on them in love and I gave them a glorious purpose. And that was to display my glory to the ends of the earth, the nations of the world. This was not because of anything that Israel brought to the table. God was very clear about this. They didn't bring anything to the table that God said, "Mm, I can really work with that. No, Israel was the smallest of all the people and the least likely to be chosen. God did not save Israel from Egypt because of what they offered. He wasn't working with their abilities or their gifts. It was actually quite the contrary. God instead saved Israel by his power alone and with no help from the Israelites themselves. This was not incidental to the Exodus. Listen to me on this. This is a feature. It's a premier point of the Exodus. This was so that everyone would always know that God is the Lord in all the earth. Israel cannot boast because they cannot save themselves. All glory is given to Yahweh. So God takes the scattered, broken, enslaved individuals, and by his own providential hand, he makes them into a people by his matchless power. That is the story of the Exodus. So here's what Peter does now. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, Peter shows up and he requotes this. What does he say? Everything that God had prepared and planned for Israel is fulfilled in the church now. That's what he says. He looks at the church and says, you are now God's people. You are now a chosen race. You are now a holy priesthood. You are now a people for God's treasured possession. Now, I want you to put yourself in here. Listen to me on this. Christians, hear me. Put yourself here. God plucked you out of obscurity. He chose to save you from the tyranny of sin, set his name on you in love, and then gave you a glorious purpose to display his glory to the ends of the earth. Listen to this. This is not because you had anything to bring to the table. He didn't look at you and say, "Mm, that's a good looking guy. That's a good looking girl. We could use her for my glory. He didn't say, you know what? She can sing. And you know, I'm, you know, I need that with Sunday morning. So got to get her. God did not have a roster up in heaven. And he was doing like, you know, picking who was going to be on his team with the devil on the other side. And he's like, "Hmm, who am I going to get? You know, he's not the Lakers stacking his roster. Instead, God looked, and this is the story of your Bible. I kid you not, read your Bible. God looks out and says, who's the least likely person? I want them on my team. Like Moses, for instance, is a guy out in the middle of the desert, and he is a self-avowed, self-admitted stutterer. And God says, I need a spokesman. (laughs) There he is, right? This is a, not a, A bug in the system, it's a feature of the system. It is a feature, a premier point in the gospel that your abilities, your gifts, and your strength cannot save you, but God can and does. God saves us by his power alone. It is so that the testimony of the church would always be a boasting in him and not in their own abilities. This is where we stand. 
This is so that everyone on the earth who knows the church, who knows us, will know that there is no God like the, like the Lord in all the earth. No man boasts in his salvation. All glory is given to God alone. God takes scattered, broken, enslaved individuals, and by his providential hand, he makes them into his own people by his matchless power. That's the church. That's us. The church is a living testament to God's covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love. That's who we are. We're a people, and together we do this. Now, time I don't have to be able to tell you, what did it cost God for us to be that kind of people? Well, I'll tell you, the Exodus is a majestically powerful story about how God, with 10 different plagues, shows Pharaoh that he is mighty all the way to killing the firstborn of all of the Egyptians so that Pharaoh will finally relent. And then Pharaoh decides he's going to chase them anyway. And he parts the Red Sea, puts a pillar of fire between the children of Israel and the Egyptians, and they cross over the Red Sea. There's many powerful things. But, but in the gospel, I dare say it is even more incredible what Christ has done for us to be his people. Because Christ not only, he doesn't bring plagues on the earth, he drinks the cup of God's plague dry in our place. Jesus goes, and instead of the firstborn dying in order for us to get out, he is the firstborn who dies in our place. Jesus faces down the Red Sea of death and hell, and his body is the bridge across it so that we can cross over the Red Sea into the land of promise. Christ gave everything that we might be this people. This is why Peter now is making this a central focal point of his letter. Now, Providence is a case study in this. You know, God's providence is all over the history of our church, not by coincidence. Um, God's power is evident in our church. You know, when we planted Providence eight years ago, we, we said we knew it was going to be by God's providence that we could ever see any fruit or, or actually be a people, be a local expression of God's, God's covenant people. We knew that it was only going to be by God's grace. You know, people would ask me, you know, how, how do you plant the church? And I say, I'll tell you, it happens in spite of you. It, it many times happens not because of me, but I'm in the way and God's like, Court, could you move out of the way so I could do some good work? And that's how it happens. But a handful of Christians were in our living room over eight years ago now. And I went back into my Dropbox and I found this prayer. We were going through Nehemiah together. This is before we ever officially launched. And there was about 12 of us or so. And I, I used to hand out these little half sheets. And at the very bottom, as we would go through Nehemiah, we would have a prayer for what we were hoping God would do in our local expression of the church. And I just wanted to read this to you. This is the prayer that we wrote. Lord Jesus, when you died on the cross, you had in your mind a church that you desired. Help us to value this body, the church. Help us to value one another as individual members of this body. Teach us to utilize our gifts for one another and not for ourselves. Rid us of selfishness and teach us to sacrifice time, energy, money, and convenience to build and grow and rejoice together. Lord, we struggle with staunch individualism. We fight daily against ourselves. Remind us of the gospel that you were bruised for us so that we might be reconciled to the Father and to each other. Help us to live as a community of light in a community of darkness. Let our community be peculiar and be holy in Jesus' name. Now, that was eight years ago that we wrote that. And when I read it again, I said, you know, when you get to know Providence, here's what you will recognize today, eight years later. And this is not so that any man may boast, 
because it wasn't done by any man. What you'll recognize among us is a lot of different kinds of people. The most common thing among all of us that are here or if you're watching online is not interest groups. That's not it because there's people who have tons of different interests. The thing that's most common about us, and honestly, the only thing that weaves throughout all of us is a love for Jesus Christ. That's it. Christ and the gospel is the thread that binds us all together and keeps us one. There's a lot of diversity beyond that, but the union is around the person of Christ. And because we have set ourselves about the union of the person and work of Christ, we can then set about the business of fostering a culture in the church of, of mercy, boasting not in our own accolades, but boasting only in the mercy of Christ. There's no heroes at Providence that are men or women. There's only a hero in Christ. We can be fiercely committed to knowing and worshiping and obeying him because we're not worried about who gets the win or who gets the loss or who gets the credit. We value each other. We sacrifice for the good of one another and we fight against our own selfish tendencies because we know if it was only up to us without the grace of God, we'd end up leading each other off of a cliff. When we read at Providence, the blind lean the blind. We all look at each other and say, that's us. We need Jesus. Now, this is so important because if God's people were made this way by God's providential hand, a few things have to be true. And these few things that I'm about to say, I think are the only things that keep us from the attacks of the enemy and deceit. Here's some of the things that we dreamed of when we planted Providence. Number one, we dreamed what would it look like if no one cared about who got the glory or who got the credit if we just wanted to make much of Jesus? What would a church look like? And part of this had already been, even then, in my experience with ministry and some of the others who were with me, that pride in the church, there is no poison like it. Pride in the church creeps in through back doors and side doors, and before you know it, more people want to be known than want to make known the gospel of Jesus. And there are big eyes and little U's and big egos, and, and it ends up ruining that which Christ died for, which is a humble people. <laughs> But this vision of God's church, it births out a humble people because no one can boast in what God has done alone. If we really believe what God says it here in Deuteronomy, that he brought the Israel out of Egypt by his own hand, and he brought you and I out from the, sl the slavery and the tyranny of sin by his own hand, then none of us can boast in that. It's impossible. We dreamed up, what would it look like for the gospel to be so central in the way that we did conflict that discord in the church was, the, was met with the gospel only? It was our primary, our secondary, and our tertiary way of dealing with conflict, the gospel. So you got angry with someone, and you adjusted it with the gospel. Somebody really uh, frustrated you or made you feel uh, angered or maybe a sermon frustrated you or, you know, maybe a song, you know, was, was wrong or whatever it may be, that you just addressed it with the gospel. That was the primary tool. It was the secondary tool. It was the tertiary tool. It was the only thing that we went to. It wasn't personal preferences or opinions or, you know, or past history or because if we all started doing that, then, you know, the eye for an eye would lead the world blind. So instead, we were just going to go to the gospel. So there could be forgiveness, there could be restoration, there could be real relationship, there could be reconciliation, there could be healing, there could be humility, there could be making room one for another at the table. There's so much that could happen with that. Well, if we truly believe this version of how the church is born, then we can have that kind of peace. Why do you say that, Court? Well, who can question the wisdom and the artistry of God's design by the fact that he brought us all together at this time in this place under his banner of his name? 
Another way to put that would be the one who made you mad in home group was put there by God, maybe to make you mad so that you would recognize your own sin and then theirs. Because sin will be killing us unless we're killing it. And sometimes we, we are under the illusion because we've developed in our own bubbles enough comforts that we're not as sinful as we think we are. But the moment you get outside of those and God starts putting people in your life that just annoy the mess out of you, you realize you're not patient. You're like, I'm a pretty patient person. Do you have kids? You're like, who brought them into my life? See, but you're okay with your kids because at some level you made that choice and that decision, right? But listen to me on this. God is equally as sovereign in who he has decided to put among you in the people of God, in your own church, in your own group, in your own community. And sometimes what we think is maybe I just need to decide to, to change into a different community so I can fix that. And here's what I will tell you. You can't fix that which God has designed. God designed it to be so. If you switch communities, guess who? You might even see the exact same person show up. You're like, not you again. Not this one. It's them. Why? Because God has meticulously designed his people. It's like a tapestry of his grace, which includes sin and forgiveness. It includes brokenheartedness and the balm of the gospel to mend. All of these are God's design. Like we dreamed up, what would it look like if our church was not going to follow the 80-20 principle? You guys know what I'm talking about? Every church I had ever been a part of, it was, you know, 80% of the people do 20% of the giving or 20% of the people do 80% of the giving. 80% of the people do 20% of the serving or 20% of the people do 80% of the serving. And, and, and what if we were a church that just didn't bow to that? Because every pastor that I ever talked to just told me, you know, court, this is just the rule, accept it. This is what happens. It's the nature of communities. It's the nature of people getting together. It's like if you've ever actually helped somebody move and there's like 20 people there, you're recognized. It's usually the same few guys that are always carrying the heavy stuff. And it's always the same guy that comes out with a lamp, you know? And you're just like, if you don't pick up a mattress right now, you know, and that's what you're thinking. The same guy keeps picking up. He's like got two kolaches. He's like, you want one? Early morning, you know? And we were like, what if our church wasn't like that though? Like, what if Providence was a people that collectively said, you know what, like each and every one of us are going to live in such a way that we're invested in contributing and participating in the life of the church. And listen, if you believe what, what God says here in Deuteronomy and what Peter's saying here, it's we can remain generous in every way because who can rightly hoard what God has freely given? Another way to put that is Paul would ask the Corinthian church, what do you have that you have not received? Nothing. And when you recognize that we're all really beggars and God has given us lavishly, then we can be generous. We can be generous because that's who our God is. He is a generous God. Paul would say he gives abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or even think. Anything you could conjure up in your mind, God's more generous than that. And that's the kind of people we're called to be. Okay. Point number two, what should we be up to? Like, what, are we, what should we be up to as a church? I started by saying we're, we're God's people that were born by God's providence, by God's power. Uh, for the purposes of God. So what are the purposes of God? Since the church is a people and it's our identity, what should we be about the business of doing? Well, I want to start by saying this. At salvation, you and I, Christians, we were born into a family and that family is the church. That's what it means to be born again. So just like, you know, we just got out of the holidays. This is perfect. You just came back from Thanksgiving and Christmas. And here's what I, I can bet. You had a lot of fun. You love your family, enjoyed that. And there's always family members that you're just 
hoping you can avoid. Like you were just hoping there might have been in quarantine. You know, maybe Uncle Ned, crazy cousin Lou, whoever it is. You're like, There's, well, man, why are they here? You know, and I always joke about this. I'm like, and if you're like, I don't have anybody like that in my family, you might be that person, okay? I just have fair and square. But, but here's what I know. Every family has dysfunction. Every family is imperfect. Like if you're sitting here and you're thinking, my family is perfect. The moment it became imperfect was the moment you were born. Because you brought imperfection. You know why I know that? Because human beings are imperfect and broken. And therefore families, as they get together and do life together, are imperfect and they are broken. And the church is no exception to this. The church is full of you and I with all sorts of, like if we were able to open up our soul and show each other what's really going on in the tangled mess that is our own spiritual life, we'd all be like, oh my gosh. Now there's a flip side to that, which is if we could really see what Christ is making us into, we would all be, C.S. Lewis said, we'd be tempted to bow down and worship one another because of how glorious it is. So there's two sides to this. But if we don't recognize that we are all a, a tangled mess of mixed, mismanaged motivations, unhealthy priorities, and even idolatry, then we'll be gravely disappointed because we'll come to church thinking that the point is that we will be perfect rather than Christ is perfect, who can answer all of our needs who can meet all of our deepest longings and who can atone for all of our deepest sins. Now, this is key because listen to me on this. This is important. The people and the things with whom we validate our or find our identity will always be the people and things that demand the priority in our lives. I'll say that again. The people and the things with whom we validate and find our identity will always be the people and things that demand priority in our lives. Another way to put that would be our time, our treasures, and our talents will always be utilized in a way that corresponds with and supports our identity. You can look at your bank account statement. You can go back and look at your daily calendar. And here's what I can promise you. You spend the time, you spend the energy, you spend the talents, and you spend the treasures on the things that support and bolster and buttress your identity. The things that you find your identity in. Now, this cuts two ways. Because if our identity is in Christ, then as God's people, Christ's people are our people. And you can't get away from that any more than you can get away from your family reunion. And Uncle Ned is your guy. You don't like it? Doesn't matter. He's your uncle. Right? You can disown him, do all that stuff. Guess what it's still going to say in the family tree? Uncle Ned's yours. Got to claim him. One of the things that is not only atheological, but not logical at all is that you would love Christ and not his church. It's like saying, I love the husband, but I hate the wife. And you might say, functionally, that's true. Tell that to the husband, though, and if they at all are a reasonable marriage, you won't be friends with the husband anymore either. Because you can't have one without the other. They come together, they're a package deal. Jesus is not returning for a, for a scattered group of disinterested individuals that never actually hang out together. There's a bride you ever wonder why he uses that analogy, a bride, that we're a body? Because that's not a scattered group. Even though there's many members to the body, they're one. They got to be together. And that's difficult. That's, that's hard. And, and that's the design. All of the difficulty that we have fighting to be a body that glorifies Christ actually makes us look more like Christ when we submit to Christ. Now, I want to say this because in our culture and in our city, there are many de-churched 
people. And I want to say this. I'm convinced part of our purpose will be to display the mercy and grace of Jesus all over again to some scattered, disenfranchised, discouraged individuals. And we need to be about that business. We do not need to cudgel people when they are actually de-churched, but instead to bring them back into the fold into something that is imperfect, but full of grace. But that's another sermon for another day. Today, what I'd like for you to consider is the one danger I think we find ourselves in is to belong to a people in body, but not in heart. That's dangerous. C.H. Spurgeon said this, nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. I challenge you, we must refuse to try to make church be the place that we require to convince us that Jesus is worthy of worship. Sometimes we do that. We think the church is doing a poor job in the set list. Didn't really get my gears going. You know, I wanted some really upbeat songs. All Brennan sings is the old ones. Or it's like, you know, that sermon just didn't do it for me. I mean, you know what? Keeps talking about marriage. I'm not even married. Look at this, this silly guy up there. He's talking about, he keeps talking about the same thing. Why does he keep talking about the same thing? Just fair warning. I don't have anything else to talk about. The gospel's the only thing. And I, there's no variety. I can't be the Barnum and Bailey Circus. It is the thing. But what happens is when we're in the walls of the church, but in its life, what happens? We begin to be critical observers, but never humble servers. Living among God's people, never giving along with God's people. Saying a lot, praying a little. Lots of opinions, few solutions. High priority on what needs to be done, a very low priority on what you can actually do to help. Physically present, spiritually absent. Almost anything else can take precedent over whatever the church has got going on. Someone offers you hopscotch, I'm in. Jesus says it like this, we become salt that's lost its savor. See, being in the life of the church does not mean being perfect. It doesn't mean that we're not all going to fail. And I'll be the chief at that. Being in the life of the church means bringing your whole self to the table, even when you feel like it's not a lot. And saying like a little boy with a few fish and a few loaves, Jesus, can you feed 5,000 with this? The good news is he can, he does, he has, and he will. Listen to me, this kind of spiritual entropy is not just constantly at work in a few of us. And that's the lie that the enemy tries to play. You might be hearing what I'm saying and saying, he's really harsh. I already got graded by this. I just got to go up here, come up here and talk about myself. It's the worst. This kind of spiritual entropy doesn't just come for the low-level Christian. It comes for Christians. It comes at the people of God because it's an attack. I am not immune to it. I'm saying we have to fight against spiritual lethargy that tries to help us make any and every excuse to be lukewarm in our faith and lackluster in our real participation. We have to fight against that with everything we have. And one of the ways that we can excuse ourselves from doing that is if we think that everybody else is just judging us for pointing it out. No, friends, let's go ahead and agree. We're all in that boat, online or in person. You are underneath that same spiritual entropy, and we're fighting with all the power that Christ will powerfully work within us in, his, in and through his spirit. That's it. You know, I always say, none of us can come to church here and say, look at me, I'm, I sprinted to church today and I look glorious. No, you had no legs, and God carried you to church today. And you looked around like, whew, I broke a sweat. And you forgot that Christ carried you. Peter goes on to say that we're God's own possession. What does he mean? Well, 
When you own something, you designed it, you built it. That means that you have possession of it and you get to dictate its purposes. In the scripture, this looks like God commanding obedience. See, when you hear the commands of God, I want you to think and, and really remember this. God never gives commandments to ruin your life or rob your joy. God gives commandments to bring you the deepest amount of life, abundant life, and the deepest amount of joy. Because what he's saying, this is how I have designed the universe and you, and this is how you function in it for the greatest amount of joy, which ultimately, when God calls you to worship him, this is not because God needs, like he's sitting around and he's like, why doesn't anyone sing to me more? Do you ever think about that? Like God's just in the heavens and is like, I can't believe during the pandemic, they just, all they do is watch Tiger King, but they don't, they haven't been singing about the tiger of heaven. This is not how God is because he doesn't need it. But here, but here's, this is key, but he designed you to need it. He designed you to only get your deepest amount of joy, deepest amount of life in that worship and any other, any other worship, any other idol, any other direction that you put your affections will rob you of joy. Even when it temporarily feels satisfactory. You know what I mean? You guys know, I mean, listen, just put yourself back a couple weeks ago before the diet started. That whole large Papa John's pizza was good for like the first 10 minutes. And then you're like, why? Why do I do it? That is anything else but worship to Christ. You see, God's purposes for the church, I'm just gonna mention these and then I gotta close, but he... Peter really lines out two major emphasis here in 1 Peter chapter 2, and, and I'll read them briefly, but the first one he says here is that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the first purpose that Peter gives out for the church. Like, what are we to be about the business of doing? Declaring the excellencies of Christ to the world. Now, we're going to spend four weeks talking about these things. But then he goes on, he says this, Beloved, I urge you, verse 11, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we have proclamation and we have demonstration. We are both declaring the excellencies of Christ to the world and demonstrating a transformed life through holy living, honorable conduct, and good deeds. This is what God created us for. And, and check this out. And not, not alone, but together. See, like the world in 2020, it, it changed a lot, but I also think it just uncovered a lot, which was already true. Like, here's one thing it uncovered, which was already true, and it just feels like it changed. And I know that this is what you were looking forward to whenever you first came for the first New Year sermon, but here you go. You are going to die. I know, it's, that's really encouraging. I just lifted you up. It's important to mention this, though, because that's not new from 2020. You and I, if the Lord tarries, we'll go to the grave. We'll go that way. It's 100%. Well, it's 99.999%. Only one went through death and came back. So death is a certainty. But what it did in 2020 is it uncovered this reality, and then it led to some despair. It led to a lot of division. And I think if you had to sum it all up, it also led to a real deep wrestling with a lack of control that we're all kind of like, Calamity surfaces and we're like, we, don't, we can't do anything about this. So we start looking for answers. And more importantly, we start looking for help. It's why I think that you, if you noticed, and maybe you haven't noticed, but, 
but it's pretty clear to me that it's why it seems that everybody is on different tribes and different teams. Like you either think Donald Trump can help and fix all of this, or you think that Joe Biden can fix all of this. You think that Dr. Fauci is going to fix all or Deborah Burks. You see, I can keep going on and on and on. But we have these figureheads that we think are going to give us the answers or bring us all the help. And then we keep getting discouraged and angry. And here's, here's what I know. Listen, you might be saying, no, court, I am no fool. I have not trusted a politician in many moons. I don't trust medical professionals, experts, no institution. They can't save me. I'm not that person. But here's what I want to say to you. Consider this a little bit further. And I say this humbly because I had to already do this. How geared up have you allowed yourself to get about the various happenings in 2020? How angry have you been? How frustrated have you been? How disgusted have you been about them? I say that because these emotions, they do not evolve in a vacuum. They manifest when we are disappointed, when we are let down. And then it begs the question, let down by whom? Whom will we let down by? And if we aren't careful, we have, to, we have to acknowledge and see our own idolatry because we ultimately may have been let down by someone or something or some institution that we thought would solve the problems. Now, maybe your cynicism has allowed you to abandon all hope. And so you're like, ha, all these chumps beside me. Not me. I can't control these things. So I just focus on my family and I let the chips fall where they may. It's just me and my peeps. That's it. And I want to ask you this question. Where in the scriptures does God give us any hope that we can find lasting peace or lasting joy by retreating into ourselves and ignoring what's happening outside? Just listen, I'm good for it if you can show me where it's at. Because I would like that. I need, I need affirmation on this. But I can't find it. Okay, most tragic of all, and this is something that's been deep, deeply on my heart, I'm convinced that we've even been, the church, shamed and deceived into believing there's something greater than the gospel, greater than Christ, that can solve the world's problem, and we have to find it. Whether it's governmental problems or disease and pestilence, nations rising against nation, check this one out, guys, racial division. The world's like, yeah, 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 the gospel, but what else? I mean, the gospel's been around for 2,000 years. Look, we still got all this stuff, so clearly that's not enough. And, and here's the most sad thing is that we've basically said, you know what? That's true. Maybe we need more than that. And I just want to say that is the most damnable and destructive lie from Satan that there can be. Because here's the thing. You and I don't have any other. There's no other play. I always used to joke about this at Providence. There's a line in Remember the Titans where Denzel Washington says, I only have three, three plays. They work like Novocaine. Just give it time. It always works. The church has one play. That's it. There's no other play. The playbook is slim, but it's powerful. It works. And when we start believing this lie that we have to go outside of the gospel, we have to go outside of Christ to fix the big bad problem of racism or governments or national division or pestilence, we are believing something that not only robs God of his glory, but it robs any chance that we're going to have any reconciliation and healing. Because there is no reconciliation and healing apart from Christ. Nowhere we can run and listen to me, friends, when we try to find it, the church decides to abandon the gospel and buy into that lie, we step outside of our lane and we lose all power we ever had. The only power we have resides in the person of Christ. When you abandon him, you're basically trying to put out the fires of hell with a water pistol. Good luck. Christ is enough for us. He's not only enough for us, he's enough for the whole world. And he's enough to address all of the world's problems. He did it with his blood. So I'll end the way I started. You know, God 
in the scriptures often calls us to this returning when, when these moments happen. And returning and repenting, they go together in the scriptures. Now, repentance, you might be like, oh, great, even more. Yes. Repentance is always a return. You might have heard it said it's like two sides to the same coin, uh, repentance and faith. We turn away from our idols and towards God in faith. And I'm convinced the church should do this repenting and returning back to who we are in Christ. Listen to me on this. Not perfection, because that's not who we are right now, but pursuit. Now, here's the good news. Being a people for God's own possession doesn't only mean that God sovereignly calls the shots. It also means that because you are God's people, he is the one who takes personal responsibility for your care. He's the one who takes personal responsibility for your protection. He's the one who takes personal responsibility for your future. That is great news. You see, Paul knew in Philippians 1.6 when he said that Christ always finishes what he starts, that that would be a great healing balm to the weary heart because you are God's workmanship. You are God's masterpiece. You can be sure there is one person in the world, one person in the universe, more committed to your growth, more committed to your sanctification, more committed to your eternal destiny than you. His name is Jesus. He cares more about it than you and I could ever care. Now that may, we're all about self-preservation. Listen to me. You probably are thinking how, and it's crazy. I don't know how, because we're all about ourselves. Christ actually cares more about your eternity than you and I ever could. So if this morning you felt convicted, I want to say join the club. Okay, that's not a bad thing because repentance always leads to refreshing. But if you feel condemned this morning, I want to admonish you. Do not leave your seat until you hear this at the deepest parts of your soul. You are God's child now. He will complete what he started in you. No matter how far you feel from that today, he is near to you, as near as your very breath. When you whisper his name, he's there. Unless you think that repentance is only for the hard sermons, Martin Luther nailed this on the 95 Thesis on the door of the Catholic Church. He said, when our, this is his very first line before he begins to basically dismantle the church. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Here's what you need to know about this guy. He loved the church. He did. He loved him enough to say, hey, we, should, we, gotta, we can't be living this life snowed under the impression that everything's fine. When Christ said repent, he didn't mean in 1994 at summer camp. Christ said every day. And why is that? Because repentance is not a tail tucked between your legs groveling before a tyrant. Repentance is a tear-filled welcome home from your father. Repentance is coming home. And home is where you or I are meant to be. And so I want to say this. You know, uh, Eric and I were talking in between gatherings, and I felt like maybe it might be helpful. But, you know, in the new year, in order for you to make any sort of resolution, you also have to face up with things that you're not actually all that crazy about. Like, for instance, before you go on a diet, you got to look in the mirror and say it's necessary. You get me? You follow me? It's like you look at yourself like, huh, this is what's happened to me. Or maybe you're like, you know what? I'm not spending as much time with my family. You have to face up to that. Say, I'm not spending the time with my family. I need to. Oh, it stings. But that sting is the necessary path to find any long-term transformation or change. Now, the gospel brings better hope than resolutions because resolutions say you got to do this on your own. I hope you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The gospel says when we turn to Christ, he meets us there and carries us, empowers us, strengthens us, forgives us, gives us the identity, the healing, the hope that we all need to really see transformation and change. 
See, that's the promise of the gospel. One poem says, you know, run, John, run the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me to fly and then lends me wings. That's our hope. And so I want to encourage you as you, as we worship this morning, don't face repentance with your head down only, but with your eyes up. Christ is faithful to receive us. He calls us home that we might have joy. If you'll stand to your feet, I want to pray for us. Father, I want to lead the way and just acknowledge I, uh, Forgive me, Lord, where I fall short often. Because I know there's many, many areas. Some even joked about today, just they are areas that I, I need you. And so I just ask, would you forgive me? Would you wash me, cleanse me, fill me with your spirit? And God, I, I pray the same for us here at Providence that as we look in the, the mirror that is the law, that when we see those imperfections, God, help us to utter the words of repentance because it's on the heels of that repentance that your real life comes. And we need it, God. We need it to face 2021. We need it to face tomorrow. And so, my God, would you keep us from the condemnation of the enemy? Keep us firmly and secure in the conviction of your spirit And God, bring those times of refreshing that you've promised. We trust you, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.